0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the film Surviving Progress, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The Green News Report, The Green Interview, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, and Activism from The Leap Year Manifesto.
1: economists say if you clear-cut the forest take the money and put it in the bank you can make six or seven percent if you clear-cut the forest put it into Malaysia or Papua New Guinea you can make 30 or 40 percent so who cares whether you keep the forest cut it down put the money somewhere else when those forests are gone put it in fish when the fish are gone put it in computers money doesn't stand for anything and money now grows faster than the real world conventional economics is a form of brain damage economics is so fundamentally disconnected from the real world it is destructive if you take a an introductory course in economics the professor in the first lecture will show a slide of the economy and it looks very impressive you know raw materials extraction process manufacture wholesale retail with arrows going back and forth and they try to impress you because they think that they know damn well economics is not a science but they're trying to fool us into thinking that it's a real science it's not. economics is a set of values that they then try to use mathematical equations and all that stuff and pretend that it's a science but if you ask the economist in that equation where do you put the ozone layer where do you put the deep underground aquifers of fossil water where do you put topsoil or biodiversity their answer is oh those are externalities well then you might as well be on mars that economy is not based in anything like the real world it's life the web of life that filters water in the hydrologic cycle it's microorganisms in the soil that create the soil that we can grow our food in nature performs all kinds of services insects fertilize all of the flowering plants these services are vital to the health of the planet economists call these externalities that's not told over and over the economy is the bottom line I don't think so What kind of a world would I like to see our species generations from now? I hope it will be a creature that understands what the real bottom line is.
2: put in your car, or burn to heat your home, actually costs a lot more than it seems like it does. But don't worry, you're not the one who has to pay that extra cost. I'm talking about externalities, the hidden economic and environmental costs of burning fossil fuels that are distributed not to the person who does the purchasing, but to everyone. It's stuff that we have to pay as a society and as individuals, and it's extremely high. Let's take a look at a chart showing the, uh, the adding up of these externalities. The big thing you're seeing there is the cost in terms of air pollution. So air pollution obviously costs in terms of making people sick, causing disease and things of that sort. And you're seeing there that coal alone does multi-trillion dollar uh, damage costs in terms of air pollution. Then you have uh, the impact on global warming and the effect that global warming has, not just on the environment but also on businesses in terms of wildfires and other things of that sort. You see lost tax revenue for some of those, and also traffic accidents, road damage from spills and, and things of that sort, explosions, fires, those sorts of things. Now, that's a lot of lot of bars, a lot of numbers there. Let's, let's add it up for you. The hidden economic environmental costs of fossil fuel consumption, the externalities, add up to nearly $5 trillion a year, or 33% more than the entire federal budget so obviously a very large cost there now i understand that many people will hear about these externalities and think well those are hypothetical i mean who knows if i if i like burn some gas someday somebody somewhere might get emphysema or something of that sort but you can't say who it is and that is true but that doesn't mean that the costs aren't real that disease exists its treatment costs something and those costs should be borne in mind when you're making, making your purchases, or as a country, when we're deciding what sort of energy policy we're going to pursue, what we're going to incentivize with tax, tax breaks and things of that sort. Now, of course, if you were to factor these externalities into the original cost of coal or oil, natural gas, gasoline, they would cost more, and we know that when you raise the price of something, consumption of it goes down. And so if you actually factored in these externalities, what effect would it have on what we purchase? Well, uh, gasoline price would jump as much as 50%. Significant increase. Not quite to Europe levels, but more expensive than we're used to. Carbon emissions would drop by 20%, which, bear in mind, is larger than a lot of the current plans to cut our carbon actually go for. We're looking at 20% right off of that. And air pollution deaths would drop by 55%. Which is a significant improvement for the people and their families who actually experience uh, diseases born by air pollution and things of that sort. So, look, you can you can take from this what you will, but I would like it if you bear in mind the next time that you are at a gas station, the cost of the fuel that you're putting in your car might be a lot higher than the sign indicates it is.
3: Because the Obama administration is preparing to push TPP, SHAFTA, the Southern Hemisphere Asian Free Trade Agreement or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whatever you want to call it, and then soon after that it will be followed by TTIP with Europe, to basically lock in profits for the big media companies who are protecting their monopolies that are called copyrights, and the big pharmaceutical companies and uh, computer companies that are protecting their monopolies uh, via, via patents, by and large, in some cases copyright as well. They they want these deals, but you know the deals are going to just destroy American jobs. In fact, the Obama administration is talking about the TPP as a small sacrifice of American jobs for a more stable system. Right, stable for whom? And here's the proof in that particular pudding. Yesterday, TransCanada, TransCanada is the Canadian company that wanted to build the TransCanada, the, the the Keystone XL pipeline, and you'll recall the president has stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. So TransCanada just sued the United States for fifteen billion dollars in lost profits. This lawsuit will be adjudicated. Not before the U.S. Supreme Court, not even in any court in the United States. It will be adjudicated in what's called an ISDS, Investor Services something, something. Uh, this is basically in a, in a court. Well, here's this. This is a backgrounder I got from uh, Lori Wallach over at Public Citizen. And these are the, the, the tribunals. These are three-judge tribunals. This will be heard in front of a three-judge tribunal. Not a court sanctioned by any nation. TPP tribunals are staffed by three private sector attorneys who are allowed to rotate between acting as judges and acting as advocates for the investors launching the cases. So the prosecutors are also the judges. Such dual roles would be deemed unethical in most legal systems. Yeah, you think? There is no requirement for tribunalists to be independent or impartial in either NAFTA or TPP. There is no system of outside appeal on the merits of a decision, and the TPP does not establish any appellate body. You can't, there's no Supreme Court of the TPP. And you can't appeal anything to any nation because nations are cut out of the equation. This is about corporations controlling governments. There is no exhaustion requirement. There's no requirement that foreign firms first have to solve their problems with the law, you know, the domestic legal and administrative venues. In other words, through through local courts. There's no requirement that they have to do that. They can just go right to the ISDS courts and the TPP and sue us. Bang, bingo. Which is what uh, TransCanada just did with uh, NAFTA. And even when governments win, even if we win. Even if we say no, we're not going to give you the the $15 billion under TPP rules, we, the United States, citizens of the United States, you and me, can be ordered to pay for the tribunal's costs and legal fees, which average around $8 million a case. Isn't that mind boggling?
4: In Nevada, the solar industry is leaving Las Vegas and the entire state.
5: We were heartbroken that they made the choice to just rip the rug out from under thousands of customers, thousands of employees. These new rates have made it impossible for us to operate as a business here.
4: That was a regional manager of industry leader Solar City after the Nevada Public Utilities Commission approved a recent request by Nevada's monopoly electric utility, NV Energy, to gut the state's solar net metering program. That pays rooftop solar owners for electricity that they deliver back to the grid. NV Energy also now gets to charge hefty new monthly fees to both new and existing customers. Solar City and other major residential rooftop solar companies have now left nevada laying off thousands of workers it was a somber frustrating day as solar city's crew tore down the same structure where they learned how to install solar panels
3: our existing customers are no longer saving money they're actually paying more than they would if they didn't have solar uh, so it's it's prevented us from being able to operate due to sales and installations here in Nevada.
6: So this is an amazing story to me. These are people who put solar panels on their roof. Uh, They were promised a a cut in electricity rates since sunshine is free.
4: That's right, and it's happening from monopoly utilities all over the country.
6: This is absolutely remarkable. I don't see how it stands, but I guess for now, uh, people in Nevada where there is nothing but sun falling from the sky, by the way, They're just completely out of luck. This is amazing. That's right.
7: Novelist, essayist, and philosopher, Ronald Wright is the author of a profound little book with the deeply ironic title, A Short History of Progress. It's a study of the ways that past societies have failed and collapsed by making the very mistakes that we're making today. The antidote, says Wright, is a kind of hope that's, quote, clear-sighted and informed and inspires people to wise and necessary action, however difficult.
8: You know, my background was uh, in archaeology when I was a student. And I started thinking about this pattern of rise and fall of ancient civilizations. And, and even before we had what archaeologists call a civilization, which essentially is a, a settled society with an agricultural base and governments and armies and cities. Uh, but even before that, even if you go back towards the end of the old stone age when the the Paleolithic hunters um, perfected their art of hunting, you see the same pattern of uh, a rapid increase in wealth and prosperity in numbers uh, caused by a new way to exploit nature. In their case um, they had perfected the art of killing large numbers of mammoths and wild horses and whatever else was out there. Um, And they became rich for a while but they used up all the game. Uh, and it's it's only that that coincided more or less with the end of the ice age, and undoubtedly there, there were other factors such as natural climate change, but the human beings themselves had an impact because they were probably burning an awful lot of woodland and grasslands and so on to make uh, grazing to encourage these herds of animals on which they preyed. So the human beings were already affecting their environment through the use of fire, and they were obviously affecting the animals by driving whole herds over a cliff in order to eat a few, which was a very a profligate use of, of a resource that, if properly managed, might have su- supported them forever, but won't support you forever if you're using up uh, uh, far more than you need, and, and if you're using it up more quickly, than it can regenerate. And, of course, also the other, the other trap there is that as prosperity increases, people have more children so the population increases so then you get a situation where you constantly have to take more from nature to support more people in this, uh, this, uh, this prosperous lifestyle. So it starts way back there with those hunters at the end of the old stone age but it really, the really big progress traps uh, come with, with the invention of agriculture and I, I mentioned the first full-blown civilization in the old world, the Sumerians, who um, perfected the art of irrigation in what is now southern Iraq uh, and they um, for for several centuries everything went really well they they, they built canals and ran the, the water onto the desert and were able to raise more and more crops and expand their farmland and expand their population and their cities got bigger, their numbers got greater, but What they didn't know is that the kind of irrigation they were practicing was causing the land to get saltier and saltier. And after a number of centuries, they suddenly saw their farm yields declining because of salinity. And um, they had to switch to crops that could tolerate more salt. And then eventually they ended up producing only about one quarter of the food that they'd been able to produce when they started. And the civilization collapsed. So they had walked into what I call in my book a progress trap and this is where the myth of progress is so seductive you, you you do something that in the short run produces obvious benefits so you're getting this positive feedback from some new invention whether it's you know a new way to drive mammoths over a cliff or whether it's a new way to uh, expand your farm base through irrigation but there's a hidden cost down the road which is often hard to foresee I don't think it's so hard to foresee the fact that if you're killing large, you know, if you're killing thousands of mammoths and horses, that sooner or later you're going to run out of them. But it was probably impossible for the Sumerians to foresee that uh, their brilliant invention of irrigation was eventually going to lead to the destruction of the land. You look at those ancient cities in uh, southern Iraq today, uh, and, and you see these mud brick pyramids sitting in the middle of extremely desolate wastelands. And those wastelands were once, you know, fertile farmland with date palms and trees and fields and they have been turned into deserts by the activity of the people who built those cities.
9: i'm joined today by roger sorkin who's producer and director of the burden fossil fuel the military and national security and the executive producer at his production company sorkin strategic communications also a fellow with the truman national security project roger you make the case and i think it's a very interesting case that the military uh is and should be the leader when it comes to moving the United States off of dirty fossil fuels into renewable alternative energy. Make the case for that. How did you first start thinking about this and and, and exploring it?
10: Sure. So um, a number of reasons. Uh, one of which started in 2010 when the military put out their quadrennial defense review and uh just declared that climate change was a threat multiplier for them um and of course if we can solve uh, you know a big part of solving the climate problems are are making sure we get the energy equation just right and with regards to the military you know they they've since come out since 2010 they've they've there've been more studies and more reports out showing how climate change is uh, exacerbating uh, some of our security challenges um but on the operational side i began to hear stories about how our our troops who were deployed not only are they deployed to help keep the flow of oil, uh, moving freely throughout the world, um, and the, you know, the U.S. is a huge consumer of the global supply, even though we may be drilling at home, uh, we still have to import quite a bit of oil and the global economy relies upon our military to make sure that that oil flows freely, uh, for the sake of the economy. Um, but also our troops that are reliant upon oil to fight actually do the fighting. And this, uh, comes out of, The the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we lost a lot of people just moving fuel throughout the battlefield. We spent a lot of money and extra time um, with the military call opportunity costs, so that if we are spending more of our time on protecting and defending the flow of fuel, Uh, or the transport of fuel, Uh, we are not able to do some of the more important work that is required to to win battles and to win wars, such as counterinsurgency and intelligence gathering. Uh, I talked with folks in the film who uh, were parts of uh, scout platoons whose job normally would be to go out and gather intelligence uh, and interact with the local population. But more often than not, uh, they would be on uh, convoy detail protecting the the, the the transport of fuel so that uh, for the next day they can then put it into their vehicles and go back out and protect tomorrow's fuel convoy. So yeah, it was I mean, just the, this the terrible cycle.
9: The absurdity of using so much fuel, fossil fuels, to go out and fight wars, sometimes motivated by the location of, of reserves that would give us access to more fossil fuels uh, and sometimes protecting fossil fuel reserves. It, it's just an incredible vicious cycle that I, I think should re- really really uh, be bringing together those on the left and right, albeit maybe for different reasons there there's nothing good about the u s having to put so much of military uh, spending and and uh, labor hours into protecting these resources when whether you think that it's because we should be having the the sort of climate concern as the number one concern or whether as you mentioned the military has sort of better things to focus on than just securing these fossil fuel resources the left and right should really be united on this shouldn't they
10: Absolutely, and that was one of the intentions of the film, was to really try to de-polit- depoliticize these issues. Uh, so, you know, when we have our our outreach and our panel discussions, we just launched a campaign called Lift the Burden, uh, hashtag Lift the Burden. Um, we don't lead with climate change, and, you know, we try to localize the issues so that if we're going to military communities – Um, you know, we try to meet people where they are. We're not going to go into a military community where people have lost disproportionate numbers of their loved ones and say, okay, we have to worry about uh, the icebergs melting. Um, we'll go in and we'll say that you're losing too many people. Um, you know, I mean, these are folks who know what they signed up for. As, as, as one of our, our soldiers in the film says, we know what we signed up for. We're prepared to give our lives for our country. But we weren't prepared to spend so much time on getting and protecting fuel. And so when we put it in terms of lives and money, uh, another way to say that is blood and treasure um, you know, that's an area that really resonates across the political spectrum. It's it's not ideological to say we don't want to lose more lives than we have to lose to protect American security, and we don't want to spend more, more dollars than we need to to do it. Um and that's really our message and that's that's the that's our pitch to to conservatives. Um I should also say within the business community, we we were just uh strangely for a filmmaker, we were invited to uh ring the opening bell at the Nasdaq opening ceremony a couple of weeks ago on Veterans Day. Right. Um because business leaders and they understand the free market conservative argument that we're making, which is that the military and you, you mentioned earlier, David, about you know, why is the military, uh, you know, the, perhaps the best place to, to lead this? It's because of the scale and because when the military issues a contract demanding a certain technology or a solution to a technological problem that they might have, private industry has always been there. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the big, bad military-industrial complex, but – you know if you harness that for good then we have the ability to scale up new technologies and well, we were just talking
9: where- we were just talking Roger about uh, i don't remember the specifics of what it was but it was a story about Japan and uh, a, a new technology that they're developing i believe it was related to autonomous vehicles and vehicle safety and sometimes when we hear about Japan we can very quickly say, wow, Japan is just so much more advanced than the U.S. in so many areas of technology. And the reality probably is not that. The reality is probably that within the U.S. military, we're seeing that same level of technological development that Japan is seeing. But because of many of the commitments you're talking about, these are new technologies that are for, for much longer. Uh, staying sort of within the scope of the military rather than coming out for consumers the way we're seeing in Japan. And that, I think, is a really good argument for why the U.S. military probably has the resources and technology to get us off of fossil fuels completely.
10: Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the messages in the film is that we have this this long tradition. For better or worse, uh, many of our technological innovations – that started out of military need. They were they were demanded by the military, uh, whether it was GPS or air, certain aerospace or communications technologies that started uh, on a military test bed because of a military need. Then eventually crossed over into the civilian sector. And that that really is one of the objectives of the film is to 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 highlight that that uh, you know because of the large scope. At our, our military commands, out of our federal budget, I mean, it's it's 20% of every dollar is being consumed by uh, by defense spending. Um, I mean, that's a, that's problem in and of itself. But as long as that remains the case, then there's no better purchaser of new technologies than the U.S. military, which you know I should say on the on the, the wrong side of the equation is the world's largest institutional consumer of oil.
9: No question about it, and and I think the, the sort of other angle, and you talk about this in the film, is the way in which our the sort of status quo around fossil fuels and particularly oil actually serves as a flow of money from the U. S. to our enemies in many ways. Can you talk about that a little bit?
10: Sure. So oil is a global commodity and it's set on the global market. Um, we do not control the price. Um, no matter how much we produce at home, we still have a high demand, even if we're demanding it and it's coming from our own reserves or our, or North Dakota or Alaska, which, which does not have that much compared with the oil reserves around the world. Um, I mean, we in the United States, we only have 2% of the proven reserves. Um, so, so we are still tied into this, this global market and, and we, we are 5% of the world's population, yet we use 20% of the world's oil. And so that demand in and of itself is, is a, is a major factor in keeping the price where it is. And the sooner we can reduce that demand, the less that price is going to remain, I mean, if, you know, basic laws of economics, we reduce our demand, that cost comes down. And what happens now is that all of what what we call these petrodollars, you know, the money that we send overseas to pay for our oil, goes into the hands often of countries that are at least adversarial to us. Um, and it also keeps the price high for uh, extremist groups and other adversaries that use oil sales to, to generate uh, profits for their operations
9: last thing i want to touch on in the limited time we have left is there anything the average person can do about this i mean there are groups that work on uh spending in the federal budget the national priorities project for example comes to mind but is there really anything that people who recognize the opportunity and the problem you're laying out here can people really do anything about this
10: Yes, absolutely. I mean, one, one thing you can do is, is go to hashtag lift the burden and get involved with our campaign. But I would say, you know, thinking about the way our electoral system is set up, um, I mean, it's unfortunate that's, that some states don't really have that much influence over certain issues. I mean, you know, to go to uh, Massachusetts and say, uh, OK, hey, we're going to mobilize the congressional delegation for uh, climate change legislation. I mean, that's sort of preaching to the choir. So yeah. I think what, what has to happen, and, and you do find this a lot of concern conservatives, um, moderates, independents they, they're they looking for an entry point to talk about this issue, they, they want to do something on climate and energy but they know that if they stick their neck out in the wrong direction, then they're going to get tagged as a liberal, they're going to have a primary challenger, there's going to be campaign ads of them standing with Al Gore, right. uh, even if they photoshop that in there, and so what we need to be able to do is, you know, if you are in a conservative leaning state call your representative and tell them you know, you've got their back, that you want them to do this in the name of national security Right. In other Uh, words, there won't be
9: electoral repercussions necessarily if they are on the right side of this
10: thing. That's our argument. I mean, I think if you couch it in terms of national security, which is, I would say, the most important element of it. um, That's where, you know, someone like Lindsey Graham, for example, he hasn't gotten much traction in the presidential election, but he has come out and said climate change is a security concern. Right. And, you know, that's, that's where the argument needs to be. And so, you know, there are a lot of Republicans out there that, that we've, we've actually had a lot of private screenings with Republicans because they don't want to be on the record publicly with this. Um, but if you, if you are in one of their districts, call them up and tell them, look, you know, you got to do something about this, save American lives, save, save our, our treasury and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, take some sort of action now
9: the film is the burden fossil fuel the military and national security we've been speaking with the film's producer and director Roger Sorkin thanks so much for being on today
11: I never knew the desert could be so high and all this heavy equipment it must cost a lot. well they issue my gun, and they told me to kill someone, but he hasn't done a thing
12: to me.
6: Meanwhile, in California, in Porter Ranch, which is a community about 25 miles north of los angeles for three months now there has been a massive methane leak from an underground tank of methane that is piped to porter ranch from texas from the midwest from the rocky mountains methane has been leaking into the air at a rate of almost 1,300 metric tons a day. It has forced the evacuation of about 2,000 homes, the closing of two schools, and widespread reports of residents being sickened. Nosebleeds. I mean, who knows what else. This leak became the single biggest source of methane emission in all of California Almost overnight. Apparently, it started on October 23rd. Within days, it was already the biggest single source of methane emissions in all of California. According to the Washington Post, when you project this leak out over 20 years, it's equal to the emissions of six coal fired power plants or seven million cars. It's massive. They don't think they're going to be able to get this under control for at least two or three months. There has been over 73,000 metric tons of methane gas pumped into the atmosphere. You know that methane gas has up to 80 times the global warming potential of CO2. This is the bridge fuel, folks, that's going to take us from oil to batteries. Everything's going to be fine once we get to solar and wind. In the meantime, we may have, you know, speeding up the rate of global warming significantly because we now have found something even worse for uh, the creation of greenhouse gases than uh, CO2. So now what they're doing apparently is they're digging these big wells and pouring cement down there uh, in the hopes of, I guess, like maybe we'll bump up against the leak somewhere. But think about the implications of this. This isn't like we move out of our house and then in three or four months after we've destroyed the um, – we've seriously poisoned the atmosphere, we move back in. A lot of people were hoping to sell their homes. How many people are interested now in buying a a home in Porter Ranch, California? I guess for those who are looking for a house that 80 percent of the value represented uh, two months ago. And I guess you know some conservatives. I guess our our buddy Doug, who calls in in the fun half of the show, might be looking for something. It's a great value, and I imagine this would be a libertarian paradise, right? As long as we price it in.
3: sherman is on the line with us a democrat from california representing the 30th district sherman.house.gov is the website congressman welcome back to the program good to be with you great to have you with us uh... is it is this uh... gas natural gas blowout in your district
13: you know um it's actually in steve knight's district i represent maybe a third of the people affected he represents about uh, two-thirds of the people who are uh... Uh-huh
3: okay so tell us what's going on
13: Although my home is uh, just about as close as, as anyone's uh, to the uh, to the blowout
3: yikes so so what uh, what's happening here
13: Well you have an enormous amount of natural gas escaping that's methane that's um, uh, other hydrocarbons associated with the methane in small quantities and it's also the mercaptan. Which is what gives methane uh, the smell. It's designed to be alarming, annoying, and, and stinky to humans, right. and uh, it does its job uh, very well.
3: So, so basically, the people of, of your district and, and your colleague's district are being poisoned by this gas call My understanding is that that there was a and this was an, a gas field. It was an oil and gas field back 60 years ago. Yeah, they pumped all the oil out of there and we're leaving a huge empty dome underground that over the last uh, 50, 60 years, they've been using it as a storage site for natural gas and that uh, back in the 70s, the uh, emergency shutoff valve uh, failed and they dug it up and looked at it and said you know it's going to cost more to fix and just decided to go without it and that's the reason why Southern California Gas made that decision back some decades ago and that's the decision why they can't turn that's the reason why they can't turn this thing off now do i have that right
13: you do have that right although what would have been better back in 1979 uh, because they couldn't get the parts to fix this uh, shutoff valve or safety valve uh, because it was so old, is they should have removed it and replaced it. And if they right. didn't make that decision in 79, they could have made the right decision in 89 or 99 or any any day for the last uh, several decades. Uh, instead, there is no um, a deep uh, subsurface uh, shutoff valve. Uh, the new ones are better because they're positive pressure. And so uh, they will stop the gas if there's an earthquake or... It, it, they'll stop the gas unless uh they're getting pressure to let the gas uh uh go through. So right. um this is the fifth largest natural gas facility in the country. This is the largest uh natural gas leak in history. And um uh, uh, we've got uh, thousands of uh of families uh that have been relocated um at the expense of Socal gas.
3: Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, We're talking with Congressman Brad Sherman, representing the 30th District of California, which has been affected by this methane blowout. Um, The governor just declared a state of emergency, which I assume gives him additional powers to deal with this and might bring some federal uh, money or attention to it. Is 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 that right? And is that the right thing to do?
13: It gives him the power to order people to do what needs to be done to deal with the emergency. Point three. Uh, it, to me, is the most important part, and it needs to be tightened. Then I'll be. Uh, um, we, we've contacted the governor's office on that, and I'll send them a formal letter. Or either uh, probably lasting today. Mm-hmm. Um, it orders uh, SoCal Gas to remove the gas uh, to the extent, to the maximum extent that they can sell it or store it elsewhere, and that's what they have been doing. The problem is SoCal Gas still regards this gas as an asset when it's really a toxin, and they should be withdrawing the gas day and night, every hour of the day, as quickly as they can. What can't be sold in the ordinary course, what can't be stored elsewhere, they can give to the electric utilities who can generate unneeded electricity and either sell it on the grid at a discount or just ground it. Right. But the electric utilities in the winter are running a, a lot less natural gas uh, than they are in the summer because people aren't using the air conditioning. So wow. um, we certainly don't want to flare or leak this gas elsewhere, but we need to pull it out not only to meet consumer demand, uh, but to, get, to to incinerate it safely wherever that can be done.
3: Which, which raises an interesting question. In fact, somebody called into this program yesterday and asked this question. Um, why are they not flaring this gas? I mean, if you burn natural gas, natural gas is mostly methane, um, which is eighty times more potent a greenhouse gas. For at least you know, its, it's half life is about I think twenty eight years or thereabouts. So every twenty years roughly, it becomes half as potent. But you know, in the first the first uh, a few decades or even the first century of its existence, it's so much more potent than CO two. But if you burn it. Uh, the methane breaks into two carbon, you know, the the two two molecules of carbon dioxide
13: cleanly. Then uh, you're not warming the planet any more than if you use it in the ordinary course, which
3: of course is to burn it. Cleanly. So why aren't they flaring this stuff? Why don't they ignite uh, well, that that there, volcano? There
13: are two things that they could flare. They are trying to uh, engage in a methane capture program, which will be tough to try to. Uh, the, the 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 gas is bubbling out. Somehow capture it and then flare it. They're willing to flare that which is being lost, uh, but what they're not willing to do is extract the gas and flare it. uh, it, it, uh, We're dealing with uh, millions of cubic feet, which is the leak. You're talking about billions of, of cubic feet in storage, and they only want to withdraw from storage what they can sell. Uh, they don't want to withdraw from storage that which they would have to flare. So they're, uh, they're willing to uh, waste or flare the gas that leaks. But this is a huge uh, uh, reservoir uh, it had. They told me 77 billion cubic feet. And then after a lot of, of cross-examination said, oh, yeah, and also 60 billion additional cubic feet that we call cushion gas. Yeah. So uh you're talking about over a, well over a hundred billion uh, cubic feet of of natural gas
3: so and they're That's and they're reluctant to flare this
13: and uh, they're only willing to extract uh what they can uh, sell
3: and they're reluctant to flare this anywhere else in order to reduce the pressure at the leak site because well, they are
13: reducing the pressure okay. but only to the extent they can sell the gas. Yeah, and, so, uh, so so this is a
3: classic so, example of profits over the commons, is it not?
13: I I think it's bad profits policy. Um, uh, you know the uh, uh, the trial lawyers are coming to Porter Ranch. Uh, there are meetings with over a hundred potential plaintiffs at a thousand uh, potential plaintiffs at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's penny wise and pound foolish for SoCal Gas not to be pulling this gas out. As quickly as they possibly can. Now, uh, they'll tell you they're pulling out a billion cubic feet uh, a day on average. But um, if they were willing, if they viewed the natural gas as a toxin to be eliminated rather than an asset to be sold, um, they'd be pulling more. Right. right. And I'm meeting with uh, some of their executives later today. I've made this uh, plane uh, last time I met with their executives, and it's uh, it's sometimes hard to get a straight answer.
11: I was living in the devil town, And not know it was a devil town, oh Lord, it brings me down about the devil town.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Leap Year Manifesto, mobilized towards new economic and energy systems. Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism vs. the Climate, is working on a new project, and it is bold. At a two-day meeting this past spring in Toronto, attended by representatives from Canada's Indigenous rights, social and food justice, environmental, faith-based, and labor movements, a manifesto was created to advance economic and climate justice. The Leap Year Manifesto has over 32,000 signatories, including organizations like 350.org, Sierra Club Canada and Black Lives Matter Toronto. Here's how Naomi describes it in her own
3: words.
14: So the Leap Manifesto is a people's agenda um, for where we want to take this country in light of the multiple crises that we face in Canada and around the world. The climate crisis, the inequality crisis, economic, racial and gender exclusion, um, But it's not a laundry list of issues. It's actually a coherent vision that knits together all of these issues and says scientists are telling us we need to lower our emissions fast. Engineers are telling us that we can do it fast, that we could get to 100% renewable energy in the next uh, 20 years on electricity. By mid-century, we could have a 100% clean economy. But for us, that's not good enough. We also, as we transition away from fossil fuels, we want to do it in a way that heals the wounds that ba- date back to the founding of this country. We want to embed it in climate justice principles, which means that the people who are getting the worst deal in the current system would be first in line to benefit from this transition in terms of the jobs, in terms of owning their own renewable energy. We also want to recognize that green workers, green jobs are not just putting up solar panels and wind turbines. It's also uh, people who are caring for young people, for old people, who are teaching, who are making media and art. These are low-carbon professions that are actually under siege uh, through the mentality of austerity. So it's a coherent vision. And it reflects the fact that I think a lot of people in Canada um, during this election uh, are voting against something. A lot of people don't feel like they have the option to vote for the Canada that they actually want. So, uh, you know, a lot of what's happening is negative. Um, The the Leap Manifesto is positive. The Leap Manifesto is the vision for the country we actually want. It's what we're saying yes to. And it's been really exciting. You know, it's not saying voting doesn't matter. We think voting does matter. Um, But we don't think it's enough either.
0: The Leap Year Manifesto states in part, quote... The time for energy democracy has come. We believe not just in changes to our energy sources, but that wherever possible, communities should collectively control these new energy systems. Unquote. As they decided that small steps are no longer enough, the team at This Changes Everything have gone international with the goal of gathering people to mobilize towards new economic and energy systems. Today, Klein and 350.org's Bill McKibben participated in a Google Hangout. You can watch at This Changes Everything. .org to get more information on the worldwide effort leap year 2016 In a piece at The Guardian, Klein lays out what the campaign means and why she's hopeful. Among the 15 demands in the manifesto, she's advocating for a rapid shift to 100% renewable electricity that's democratically controlled to be paid for by ending fossil fuel subsidies, imposing high royalty rates on fossil fuel extraction, and implementing cuts to military spending. Leap year 2016 would not just address climate change. It could create equity for long-suffering groups who have dealt with discrimination and multiple multi-generational health issues from pollution, reduce economic and gender disparities, and initiate a boom of stable, well-paying jobs. At leapmanifesto.org, you can join or host an upcoming event such as teach-ins, community discussions, screenings of This Changes Everything, and more. Klein is optimistic that this is all possible thanks to recent victories against Keystone and Shell's Arctic drilling. She closes her Guardian article with words of motivation and encouragement. Quote, Take a minute or two to think about the extra day at the end of this month. It's a reminder that people can indeed come together to change a failing set of rules. The laws of nature? Not so much. Then let's make 2016 the year we started to bridge the chasm between what is and what must be. Let's make it the year we started to leap." Unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofaleft.com. If economic and climate justice matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Leap Year 2016 via social media so that others in your network can get involved too.
2: Can you stand up and be counted There's a body in a crowd?
11: Put your name on a petition With your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud As you stand with head on bowed, Weather beating on your brow Demanding answers here and now
2: Cause that's how you make a difference
15: In this fickle world of change
7: That's just the inevitable culmination of its growth ever since the Stone Age. And there were way stations along the way, like the Roman Empire. And now here we are, and uh, more and more people are in the same boat, and they face problems, and either they will solve them together or suffer together, and, you know, possibly on a catastrophic scale.
16: We are entering an increasingly dangerous period of our history. Our genetic code still carries the selfish and aggressive instincts that were of survival advantage in the past. But I'm an optimist. We are the only intelligent beings in the galaxy. We should make sure we survive and
13: continue.
16: If we can avoid disaster for the next two centuries, our species should be safe. We have made remarkable progress in the last hundred years. Our only chance of long-term survival is not to remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. One
1: of the challenges
16: that that it faces
2: the human species is we are more and more in a position of acting like gods. This has been true for a while because we've had the ability to change the climate, for example. This is gonna be even more true with genetic technologies. We're gonna be able to manipulate other species and eventually ourselves. We're gonna be in a position of controlling our own fate in a way that no creature has ever, in you know a billion years on the planet, had an opportunity to do.
14: I once wrote a poem in which
15: a mad bishop said and man became God became greater than God in the Godhood of man. I do not see anyone living in this materialistic society as being anything like God. I don't know what God is but uh, in my wildest dreams, I would never conceive of God or a God as being like uh, a modern human being in a materialistic society. Mm.
13: We're, we're anything but godlike. I, I think the challenges are so overwhelming to all of us uh, that we're all wa- trying to just
17: use whatever new tools we can. Uh, to try and change the future. Synthetic biology is a progress trap par excellence. <music> Biologists have pointed out that these engineering approaches is, is all very well, and the engineers can try to treat life as though it was some sort of computer or engineering substrate. Um, but ultimately, the microbes are going to end up laughing at them, That uh, that life doesn't work like that. I think the problems that we're seeing now, whether we're talking about hunger and massive inequity, whether we're talking about climate change or the loss of biodiversity, have been driven over the last 200 years by a system of overproduction of stuff and overconsumption of stuff. And, uh, and then that's been inflated and inflated and inflated to the point where it really is not in any way reasonable. Um, the, the companies and, and those within governments who have supported that, that approach – Um, are now saying that they will provide new technologies to continue that consumption of stuff, that level of production. Um, It's just not realistic.
7: It's easy now to see kind of a a giant social brain or planetary brain because it's in the the physical form of the Internet. It, It looks so much like a nervous system, you almost can't miss the analogy. You might say that there have always been a lot of little social brains around the planet getting bigger, starting to form little inter- interconnections among themselves. Now, more than ever, you could say there's a unified uh, social brain. Even if the overall arc of history is toward an expanded moral horizon, more and more people acknowledging the humanity, more and more different kinds of people, there's always the risk of backsliding, and it can be catastrophic. From a point of view of strict self-interest, it is imperative that we make further moral progress, that we get more and more people uh, to acknowledge the humanity of one another, or it will be bad for pretty much all of them. If we don't, uh, develop what you might call the moral perspective of God, um, then we'll screw up the engineering part of playing God. Um, because the, the actual engineering solutions depend on seeing things from the point of view of other people, ensuring that their lives don't get too bad because if they do, it'll come back to haunt us. Um, so, you know, kind of half of being God has just been handed to us and then the question is whether, whether uh, we'll master the other half of being God, the moral half. The bad news is that the Enlightenment is is sometimes hard to come by uh, because of human nature in some cases, because, you know, we've, we've got these kind of animal minds designed for a very different environment, facing novel problems so the enlightenment part is going to require some real education and reflection and self-discipline that may not come naturally
8: i think what we're up against here is human nature we have to reform ourselves remake ourselves in a way that cuts against the grain of our inner animal nature and transcend that ice age hunter that all of us are if you if you strip off the thin layer of civilization Initiators of this experiment. We've unleashed it, but we've never really controlled it But now it's more likely that we're going to come to grief because of environmental problems If we do then that is really nature saying the experiment of civilization is a failed evolutionary experiment that making apes smarter is a is a dead end uh, So it's up to us to prove nature wrong in a sense to show that we can uh, take control of our own destinies and behave in a wise way that will ensure the continuation of the experiment of civilization.
0: show began and ended today with clips from the film Surviving Progress, which I just saw a couple of days ago and highly recommend. It's streaming now on Netflix and probably elsewhere. Go check it out. The first clip of the day featured David Suzuki talking about the destructive economic concept of externalities. John Irola from the Young Turks seconded that notion with his take on the same subject. Tom Hartman explained the trouble with trade deals like NAFTA and the TPP in the context of the U.S. being sued by TransCanada for lost profits over the blockage of the Keystone XL pipeline— the Green News report shined some light on Nevada's state legislators' decision to kill the solar industry in their state with regulation. The Green interview talked with Ronald Wright about progress traps. The David Pakman show discussed the role that the U.S. military may play in catapulting new energy technologies. The Majority report explained the basics of what's going on with the methane leak in California, and Tom Hartman followed up discussing the market mechanics that is actually causing the industry to flare off less methane than they could, which would be better for the environment, but not as cost-effective for the company. Our activism for today is from the Leap Year Manifesto, a comprehensive plan to combat not only climate change, but also myriad social justice issues that go hand-in-hand with the solutions to global warming. And finally, the last segment we heard is a collection of clips from the film Surviving Progress. As I said, I saw the movie recently. I highly recommend it, as well as the film version of This Changes Everything, which I also just got around to watching recently and definitely think is worth your time. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
12: Hello, my friend. This is Jake. Oh, excuse me. Wow. This is V from uh, New York. And um, I just got done listening to episode 984 and uh, was very pleased with it, actually. But... Uh, one quick comment. To me, the system is not great. It's just the system. Very few people look at the system as being fundamentally operating, uh, the way that it's actually, actually supposed to be. I look at it in that way. When I look at The evolution of capitalism, which started in imperialism, then moved to mercantilism, which was all about control of markets and a friendly competition between people who um, saw their, their interest in taking over everything and controlling everything. And then I see mercantilism evolve into capitalism. I'd say, well, capitalism is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And neoliberalism, which is the next stage in capitalism, is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. So, the system yeah, it's rigged, but it's also acting the like way it's supposed to act. It's not broken. It is doing exactly what it is meant to do. Um, and this is something that I think we fail to look at concretely, because in this period of time, we are witnessing the system basically metastasize with itself. We know, of course, because of climate change, that the Earth is basically dying because of this economic system. Well, if you are reading books on economics and you do not realize that the expansionist theories and concepts of capitalism is the reason why the Earth is dying, because basically it is a cancer. Suckling on everything that the earth produces, then you are missing uh, the overall premise of capitalism. This is something that must be not only looked at closely now, it really must be accepted. Because as Chris Hedges is, is saying very forcefully, we have to move to save ourselves. And in order to do that, you must admit that you're sick. And sickness is capitalism. Sorry for the bumpy introduction. Uh, you have a great day. Please.
15: Hey, Jay. My name is Nick Subla and I'm calling from Colorado. I just finished listening to your last episode on economic inequality, and found out it's one of my favorite episodes of late. I wanted to call in with a book recommendation, in part to answer Wade's question about why economic inequality impacts society but also because it really is a phenomenal book that fits perfectly with your current dialogue on the show. In addition to Piketty's Capital in the 21st century, the most powerful book I have come across on the topic is called The Spirit Levels, Why Greater Equality Makes Society Stronger by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson. The book, in effect, sums up three decades of research analyzing the impact that economic inequality had on society. More specifically, the book breaks this question into 10 sections focusing on how inequality adversely impacts community life and social relations, mental health and drug use, physical health and life expectancy, obesity, educational performance, teenage births, violence, imprisonment and punishment, social mobility, and environmental sustainability. And for each of these sessions, the book provides statistically significant data demonstrating how increasing economic equality makes everyone in society, even the richest 1%, better off. The self-stated purpose of that research is to provide a powerful policy lever for the, psych- for the psychological well-being of all of us. Rather than blaming parents, religion, values, education, or the penal system for society's most dominant social ills, Pickett and Wilkinson demonstrate that our broken society and broken economy have resulted from the growth of inequality, and claim that targeting economic inequality as a root cause, the common denominator, that society's most pressing issues would powerfully ameliorate the most damaging dimensions of our society. It would take a full show to comprehensively cover their work in demonstrating how economic inequality drives devastating consequences for society. So instead, I wanted to encourage you and your listeners to look into the books. I'll finish with one of my favorite quotes from JFK, that ties in nicely with your ending comments from the last show. The gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our our courage, neither our wisdom nor our, our learning neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Thanks for your work, Jay. I'm always looking forward to your next show. Oh, I, I think I might have just smoked the quote was actually from Robert Kennedy. Cool. Thank you so much, Jay, and, and talk to you soon. Peace.
5: Hey, it's Kate calling again. I called in before. I am white, um, but I, and I know you want to hear from some non-white people, some people who are routinely victimized by capitalism and our current system. But I was thinking a lot more about Wade's arguments, and it made me think a lot more about just his profound misunderstandings of how an economy works. So uh, a couple things that I want to set straight really quickly, and um, you'll, you'll kind of see, Wade, that your argument about inequality being good uh, really doesn't hold up at any level. Okay, number one, capitalism is a totalitarian system. By the very nature of capital being hoarded by a small number of individuals means that wealth is going to be consolidated. And that means that they will have more resources to basically ferret out any other alternative systems that are working within a capitalist system. And that's exactly what we see when we see, uh, for-profit top corporations going into things like education, um, coming into the government, things like emergency managers, which can be private companies. And, you know, as a Canadian, I would say obviously healthcare is no place to hoard profits either. So capitalism, by nature of its consolidation of wealth, will seek out and destroy any alternative systems, socialized systems, and will seek to turn them into capitalist systems so that the capitalists can benefit. And I don't think any of us want to live under a totalitarian system. Number two, Wade seems to know a little bit about economics, maybe enough just to be dangerous, but it seems to lack a profound understanding of 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 the makeup of our economy. Maybe we do need to be more ethical consumers, but a huge amount of our economy is business to business, and I would love to know how he's going to have businesses to moralize their purchases because there are literally millions of financial transactions that happen every day in terms of capital markets. He's obviously overlooked that, but it is a huge sector of the economy, and there's really no way to ask consumers to be more moral while those business-to-business systems essentially drive our economy. Really, the only way to combat those are to take the hoarded capital out of the hands of the people who own the means of production and give them back to the people who labor. Okay, last point about inequality being good. I really need to put Wade back on the defensive here and ask him what is good about inequality Number one, it's a basic betrayal of your American values. Uh, it says right in your Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Obviously, there are problems with that sentence. It doesn't apply to people of color and women, but you know, it's like does Wade think he knows better than Thomas Jefferson? Didn't Wade risk his life to defend those values? I just don't understand why he thinks that would be literally in the Declaration of Independence, and yet would support a system that says, no, inequality is good. And I think Wade needs to understand how inequality actually works. He is not the one who's going to benefit from inequality. As your last episode said, and we're talking about Tom Piketty, the people who have inherited wealth are the ones who are going to benefit from inequality, not the average person like Wade or me or you. So basically, people who contribute nothing to the general good of humanity but just can hoard their wealth because that wealth is increasing more so than the general market. So, Wade, you are not the person who is going to benefit from inequality. If you're talking about inequality in terms of your labor being recognized, that could happen in any system and actually it's going to happen in a more labor-centric system way more than it is in a capitalist economy. and. What we mean when we talk about inequality is that there are some people in this world who just, by virtue of who they are, cannot generate profit for other people. could be people with profound disabilities. Obviously, lots of people with disabilities can labor and generate profit. But I'm talking about people who, you know, they just can't for for whatever reason and a huge group of people with disabilities are veterans and the reason you see veterans who are homeless is because of the inherent inequality in our system because they can't come back into society and generate capital for people who own means of production so when you say inequality is good you're saying things like disabled people being homeless is good veterans with disabilities is good And that is just such a disgusting betrayal. And I have to say, what is good about that? You know, it's not about recognition. It's about the people who are gonna be victimized by that inequality. And that there's just nothing good to me about that. So if Wade wants to let me know what's good about veterans being homeless because of inherent systemic inequality in our capitalist system, I would really like to hear it. That's all, Jay. It made me so angry to think about inequality being good with just literally no thought about who is going to be victimized by that system, including people with disabilities, people of color, veterans with disabilities. You know, it's just disgusting that someone would think that. Have a great day, Joe. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klabusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So we had a couple of voicemails there responding to Wade's question about inequality. and So I want to touch on that conversation. And, you know, I I, I like Wade's role on the show. He's sort of a foil for conversation. Sometimes he says things that are infuriating, and sometimes he, you know, just asks questions that deserve answers, and sometimes he says things that make you love him. And the most recent update I got from him, he said that, uh, you know, he, I've probably noticed that I haven't been hearing from him as much as usual, which is true. And he said that that's because he's doing his master's program right now while working what sounds like full time. He's a truck driver, so he drives like 10 hours a day and then works another five hours on his, uh, you know, master's essays and things like that. So, uh, congratulations to him for all of that fine, hard work he's doing. Now, In response to Kate's voicemail, uh, I have a couple of things to say. She was pretty angry at Wade, as you just heard, for thinking that inequality is a good thing. And although he may think that, uh, I can't read his mind, so I just want to reread what he actually wrote. I just want to be fair. And uh, so this is what he had to say to me regarding inequality. At the end of one of his emails, he wrote, P.S., I would like to hear your reasons on why income inequality is so bad. How does it take money from an individual? How does it hurt an average person's chances of success? Not being a wise ass, just want to hear you speak on this. Unquote. Like I said, I don't know what he thinks. Maybe he thinks our current style of inequality is awesome, but for the moment I can only go off of what he said, and it sounded like he was asking a question more than making a statement, so take from that what you will. Secondly, Kate was using the term inequality in her message, whereas I very intentionally use the term extreme inequality. So I don't know if we actually agree on this point, because again, I can't read her mind either, but I think it's an important rhetorical difference. If you just say that inequality is bad, then there are a lot of people out there who will think either genuinely or they'll just take the opportunity to attack you uh, that they they will uh, suggest that you are advocating for forcibly imposed literal equality. Like no matter what job you do for you know what you do for work to get paid, you will be forcibly paid the same amount as everyone else, literal equality. Just to be super clear, I think it should be obvious to everyone why that is not a good system and we shouldn't allow anyone to set up a strawman argument like that by suggesting that what we want is literal equality. A reasonable amount of inequality is actually a very good thing. It creates incentive to do good work and rewards those who do. Uh, so, you know, imagine like a utopian, uh, amazing worker co-op. It's run fully democratically. Everyone votes on the issues about running the business, et cetera. On average, worker co-ops vote to pay their highest paid workers about six to eight times more than their lowest paid workers. And of course, this could be greatly affected by the type of work that's being done in a company like that. Uh, and I can Imagine a scenario in which the workers would vote to pay everyone equally, but generally that's not the case. Usually there are entry-level workers and super high-skilled workers or management, and they vote to reward those different uh, job descriptions differently. So, you know, a co-op where workers are making like a modest income could conceivably have their lowest paid workers making 40 grand and their highest paid workers making 320 grand. And that is certainly unequal, but I don't think it qualifies as extreme inequality, especially not when the salaries of the management are voted on by everyone at the co-op. That's kind of what democratic fairness is all about. Now let's imagine a business like Apple was run as a co-op. Like theoretically, maybe they make so much money. I just made up all these numbers, but let's say their lowest paid worker could make $125,000 and their top management takes home eight times more than that at a million. So again, that's unequal. But not extremely unequal. And in this imagined society, we see that some of the lowest paid workers at the, you know, the modest co-op are making 40 grand, while some of the richest people, the top brass at the super profitable company are making a million, which sounds like a big gap until you compare it with the kind of inequality we actually have in place today. You know, working full-time at minimum wage brings in around 15,000, while top earners bring in tens or hundreds of millions. So I don't want to hear anyone trying to be clever, trying to accuse people who criticize capitalism as being in favor of communist-style equality. We're in favor of a reasonable inequality that creates those types of incentive structures that humans need to thrive. But we oppose extreme inequality in the strongest possible terms. So keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode...
11: Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see